they weren't invincible like what like I'm sure there are better things they could have done I'm not trying to be like everything they did was right and they didn't make any mistakes but it's right. like they were in a really tough position no, and the only person who never made any mistakes was me <laughs> that's right <laughs> yeah when I was in charge of the Soviet Union everything ran fine I don't know yeah that motherfucker Brezhnev fucked it up <laughs> Yeah, he didn't do a lot. <laughs> no, he was he didn't do a whole lot of anything at all, did he? No, he was mostly like, oh, let's just keep stuff on autopilot. And hopefully the capitalist world will collapse and it didn't really happen, unfortunately. I mean, they I don't wanna like oversimplify that. They did some good stuff during the seventies, like especially in Africa, like with Angola. Yeah. Although they kinda had to be dragged kicking and screaming by the Cubans into Angola. But they eventually they did and they did help out a lot. They helped yeah. out the in Ethiopia, although the Ethiopian regime was kinda not <laughs> um, but uh it, I like it's funny, like I read this like really reactionary history of the Cold War and it's mostly a shitty book and I don't recommend it to but there were a couple of spots where the guy who was writing it, who works for like London School of Economics or something, um, where he had actually gone through some of the Soviet archives and gotten a bunch of like KGB correspondence and stuff right. during a bunch of these conflicts. And so there was some interesting info in there, like during some of the expeditions in Africa to help out, you know, wars of national liberation there. And some of the stuff about Afghanistan was also really interesting, which really reinforced for me that it's like they wanted to help in both those cases. And it just, there were so many other forces at play. And so the other thing was so many internal forces that they didn't fully necessarily understand in each of those countries and that they couldn't control and were trying to find a balance there and then especially in afghanistan like completely went out of like whack and and there there were a bunch of i mean mistakes is an understatement right uh, <laughs> but anyways anyway <laughs> <All right. finally cooling off here in a couple of days it's finally going to be in the 60s for the high i can't all right that's very nice <laughs> yeah i'm out in yeah. the summer <laughs> me too sweater weather that's that's gang gang honestly hot drinks oh they really get you going you know what well, i mean we've been having pretty hearty meals and tea at night and it's been pretty great when i can switch to wearing a flannel full time that's that's very good yeah, when I can have soup for lunch every day and no one oh, yeah. will make fun of me, that's the, that's the business right there. That's the good stuff. You get you get made fun of for eating soup. People will make fun of you if you're like, "Oh, I could go for a nice steak and potato soup right now," and they're like, "It's July. It's ninety <laughs> degrees out. Shut up, idiot. Steak and potato soup is good all the time." <laughs> yeah, I am also looking forward to you know. Uh, being somebody who has a scarf permanently attached to their face, not mm-hmm. being the sort of thing that makes you sweat all the time. <laughs> mm-hmm. I got my fucking bag of candy corn right here. My, <laughs> Hell my yeah. Brocks. Oh, oh, hold on. I got this at Aldi Sunrise brand candy corn. Oh, boy. The good shit. <laughs> 
Is there like a dark mode version that's like sunset? <laughs> oh yeah, the scary corn. Uh, I think that's that um, that corn with the chocolate tips on it. Yeah, that was marketed very racistly for a long time. Oh no, I didn't know uh, about that. That's bad. Yeah, I don't know if this is a thing all over the country, but for a long time when I was growing up, you could get candy corn and mellow cream pumpkins, and then you could get something called quote-unquote Indian corn, which was like candy corn, but not very good. And it tasted like chocolate for some reason. And it had no, there was no reason to put chocolate in candy corn or to market it that way. Just let it be sugar that looks like corn and let me enjoy myself in peace. (laughs) Right, right. And and stop like weirdly naming it after the wrong word for indigenous people. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Although, I don't know, like, if, if I was at a restaurant and I saw Indian corn on the menu, I'd be like, ooh, curried corn. Like, yeah, I'll, that's what know, I would assume it was. I would eat yeah. that in a heartbeat. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, welcome, everybody, to Work Stoppage, the number one uh, fall and autumn snack <laughs> review podcast. We're going to be throwing up a poll on Twitter this week. Do you like candy corn or mellow cream pumpkins better? And if you if you don't vote for mellow cream pumpkins, I swear to God, I will find you. There will not be an option to abstain. No, that's you can't, right. Yeah, if it, that's right. It, built into the poll, it'll say like, if you see this and do not engage with the poll, uh, doom will visit you in 420 <laughs> seconds. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's right. But we're here. We got all the hosts. Um, we're going to do a regular episode. We hope that you enjoyed our interview with the workers from Hudson Legal that we talked to last week. And we hope that the voice changer modulations weren't too harsh on your ears or hard to understand. <laughs> but it's important for us to protect the identity of our anonymous guests. So uh, this week, we are going to be starting with a follow-up on the Nabisco strike, which is over uh, with some pretty fucking big gains for the workers, not a perfect slate, uh, not a 100% completion, but it did. It does look like they got some pretty nice shit, including 60 cent raises every year for the next four years. So a grand total of uh, $2.40 an hour after four years goes by is not too shabby. Yeah, so, I mean, our listenership is probably aware by now that the Nabisco strike ended after uh, just over five weeks. So the, there is now a new contract for the Nabisco bakers. And just to go over the details of it, as John was saying, the, the folks at Nabisco, the, the workers did get most of what they were asking for. Uh-huh. At, at the very least, they did stave off the worst <laughs> abhorrent shit that, that Mondelez was trying to do to them. As, as John said, they've got those wage increases for the next four years. They also got a $5,000 like, contract signing bonus. For every employee, um, they also, this was a big one, they managed to block the proposed health care cuts that Mondelez was, was pushing for, which that combined with the other like freezes that they'd been planning to do had potentially been having some workers looking at a loss in compensation of up to $40,000 a year. So halting those completely getting the raises, and, and then also they got a, a doubling of uh, the employer contribution to the 401k, and while 401ks suck and they should have pensions instead, this is, that's still a, a good increase for these workers. So those are all big wins for the workers. Definitely glad about that. The, the caveat that, that's preventing us from saying this is a 100% win is unfortunately 
the the other big thing that they were fighting against on here, which is the really long continuous shifts that Mondelez had been pushing to you know keep production levels really high, were not able to be gotten rid of completely. Basically, where they had been pushing employees to work, you know, multiple twelve-hour shifts in a row mm-hmm. without being paid overtime, that has now been sort of shunted into a space where only employees with under a year uh, employment under their belt can be basically forced to work those shifts. These will now be called weekend crew roles, where they have basically you work three twelves and get paid for forty. So they're not going to get, you know, time and a half, which is what working that long of a shift, obviously, you should get. But once workers have been there for a year, though, they cannot be forced to work those shifts. So, well, I think that it's, yeah, yeah I do think it's pretty important to, to look at two aspects of this in that, like, uh, it is not actually generally very clear to people that working 12 hours would get you overtime. But there are a lot of union contracts out there that as soon as you get over eight or ten hours, that that is uh, actually considered overtime. So for Mm -hmm. people not familiar with that process, um, that is technically how it works in many union contracts. It's one of the things that you can get from unionizing and getting a contract. But additionally, I want to go back to the healthcare issue real quick Mm -hmm. because... Like the company was planning on cutting or increasing the costs of healthcare for all of the workers, and without a union contract, they would just do it. They oh, would just roll it out, and companies do that all the time. And if you don't have a union or a contract, it's a there's a pretty good chance that sometime in the next year or two, they're going to try to raise your healthcare costs. Absolutely, uh, and you're not going to have a lot of recourse unless you do something about it. I mean, echoing exactly what you're saying, I mean, if you are a worker in the United States, it's more critical um, than almost anybody else for you to make sure that you do have union or at least formal uh, labor representation because this is a country that does not provide any kind of fucking health care. And that figure that Dan threw out earlier, $40,000 worth of health care that this company now has to give its workers, that's an entire salary's worth of health care. Once it's translated, you know, dollar to dollar into what you would have to pay if you had a serious emergency. So, like, it's one of those things. I think companies in the United States are really, really confident that workers and consumers generally don't understand the healthcare system well enough to feel confident arguing uh, and and fighting for their their healthcare rights and their their provisions in the workplace. But those really are like utterly critical pieces of labor infrastructure for you to have and for you to to feel safe and secure in your job in like a in like a sustainable way. Well, I think that that's really an important point as well as to why uh, it is is kind of a good fight to get some health care for all going on in here because, like, the fact that you have to know a a bunch of, like, bullshit for whatever specifically applies to you takes up so much of your time that you're not able to hold solidarity with a lot of other people who need help and who need you to, like, people to fight for their rights. I mean, whether it be the rights of disabled people uh, fighting for long, uh, fighting for long term care for you know any per- person of any age or trans health care or anything like that like that all requires like coalitions of people to be able to fight and when we're fighting against a thousand insurance companies uh you know we're, we're broken up into a million battles and right. and in order to actually consolidate our battles and struggle 
for all of us, we we do need a healthcare for all proposal. Although I'm pretty sure our listeners are familiar with that. Just wanted to make sure to to bring yeah. that up. But I mean, that's why that's why there really is such a dark cloud hanging over this win, as big of a win as it is for the Nabisco workers. And I don't want to diminish that, but the the the. The fact that they were allowed, the Nabisco Corporation, to maintain a two-tiered system of workers who have different like working privileges, hours, rates of pay, and benefits is like a very, very big blow to the sustainability of these wins for the workers. Because the, when you divide up the working class like that, when you divide up your workforce into groups that now have to identify as either like a weekend crew role or a right. full-time, full-fledged employee, uh, you know, not to be infant tile but you run into like fucking dr seuss star-bellied sneech hours and the company is really yeah. really keen on opportunizing on that to fuck over all of the workers you know yeah, yeah and and like to your point lena like the, it's one of the things about the the fact that we don't have medicare for all here that really harms labor organizing across the board because it forces even the best intention to the best run the most radical unions in this country to spend so much of their organizing effort just to hold on to those healthcare benefits and the amount that they would be able to get if that was just mandated by a, you know, a, a free healthcare like a system. system. Yeah. Yeah. That, that would allow them to do so much more with their time and their resources. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the things that I always find, I mean, not to go off on a tangent, but one of the things that's frustrating when we see some of the more right wing business unions when medicare for all comes up talk about it as if it's somehow taking something away right because these workers fought really hard they really did they were out on strike they were fighting to keep their health care and yeah they did put up a really big fight but what would they have gotten if they didn't have to fight for that they would have gotten those 12-hour shifts eliminated and the two-tier system eliminated they would have had better wins well i mean that's a really impressive bit of cognitive dissonance for a corporation to get a worker thinking which is that like hey something that we fought long and hard for if that was just guaranteed to us and everybody else by the federal government instead that would would somehow be bad like no <laughs> right. motherfucker all that energy that you used fighting like exactly like lena said all that energy you used fighting for health care or a pension or whatever the fuck could then be used to even further and more imaginatively improve your work conditions possibly even leading to worker ownership of the company insane and far-fetched i know but it is possible <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah absolutely yeah so so obviously, you know, this is a mostly a big win. Obviously, mm-hmm. the the retention of the weekend shifts without the overtime pay and the the way that that's going to split workers who have been there for less than a year kind of away from the rest of the workforce. That sucks, but th- I mean, keeping the healthcare costs, getting those raises, like getting the additional uh, contributions to retirement funds, all very big wins. And and so we had a quote here from the international president of the the BCTGM, which is the, you know, the, the union that represents the folks there. This is the Anthony bakery, Shelton. Ba- bakery, confectionery, uh, what's the T? Tobacco workers, <laughs> right? Tobacco, grain miller. Yeah, yeah. Nice, good, because I forgot what those <laughs> yeah. ones were. I'm like, I knew B is bakery, but anyway. So uh, he said, quote, this has been a long and difficult fight for our striking members, their families, and our union. Throughout the strike, our members displayed tremendous courage, grit, and determination. The BCTGM striking members made enormous sacrifices in order to achieve a quality contract that preserves our union's high standards for wages, hours, and benefits for current and future Nabisco workers. 
Their sacrifice will benefit all BCTGM members and working people around the country for years to come. Those brothers and sisters who walk the picket line day in and day out are true BCTGM heroes. The BCTGM is grateful for the outpouring of fraternal support and solidarity we receive from across the labor movement in the U.S. and around the world. And that is something that that's I think true. is is that's another thing about this strike that I think was was really interesting was that it was really gratifying to see all of the support that they were getting from so many other unions, mm-hmm. which and we don't always see. And I, I mean, part of it is because this was actually getting coverage and, you know, people are like they don't they don't want to be without their snacks. But like <laughs> it, it's always good when you see like unions that don't necessarily have any material investment it, or at least they don't think they do or it might not be obvious that they do to just come out and be like, yeah, no, fuck you guys pay these people, help them out and, and, and actually show up and stand in solidarity. And that was one of the, I think the better things that, that was good to see as a part of this strike. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Well, and speaking of a large outpouring of support and stories that are getting a lot of coverage, we want to talk a little bit about the ongoing saga of sexual harassment at a little video game company known as Activision Blizzard. Some of you may have seen some of their indie titles, such as the Diablo (laughs) series. Uh. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, apparently they have been working with CWA uh, to help them do some of their actions and uh the current one that we're actually going to be following up with is the ulps that they filed uh with the nlrb to um basically say that there was um like serious retaliation that was going on during the Mm -hmm. at least during the process that was happening that we covered early like initially but also just um ongoing harassment in general yeah so like Previously, we had covered the the big the lawsuit and all the culture of sexual harassment that appears to be endemic, like around Activision Blizzard, and and from some of the information that came out at the time, a lot of the games industry in general, right. at least a lot of the bigger companies, and as a part of that whole process, you know, obviously workers at Activision Blizzard and and around the gaming industry have have gained more interest and energy around organizing and part of that has led to them discussing other aspects of the job including some related ones like specifically the issue of forced arbitration and one of the and what what these ulps are specifically focused on is that basically as a part of this backlash to the awful culture in in Activision Blizzard King, uh, which is ABK, is because that's the full name of the company, uh, that basically the company has been really trying to crack down on workers sharing information about their contracts, about you know salaries, all these things. Specifically, the charging document for the ULP, uh, the workers allege that quote within the last six months, the above named employer. Uh, Activision Blizzard has repeatedly engaged in unlawful conduct by threatening employees and told employees they cannot communicate with or discuss ongoing investigations of wages, hours, and working conditions, maintained an overly broad social media policy, enforced a social media policy against employees who have engaged in protected concerted activity, threatened or disciplined employees on account of protected concerted activity, engaged in surveillance of employees engaged in protected concerted activity, and engaged in interrogation of employees about protected concerted activity. So that's like and, every protected concerted activity <laughs> no-no in the book. Yeah. Pretty much that Activision Blizzard seems quite apparently guilty of. 
Yeah, it basically from reading about it, it seems like their goal was to try and really tamp down on information about working conditions at ABK to to try and, you know, minimize the fallout from the the big firestorm that came right. out of the the lawsuit and, and and all the the revelations about the culture there and as in the process of that the 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 allegation is that they've been trampling on their workers rights to talk about their working conditions to talk about their salaries to talk about what's in their individual contracts including specifically trying to get rid of forced arbitration because we've talked about before like how much arbitration you know, which is always portrayed as, oh no, it's fine, it's neutral. You bring in a third party, and 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 they they come in and they're completely objective, and they just you know rule on whoever's right. But I that's mean, not arbitrators actually... work for the boss. That's exactly that's a fact. Yeah, that's the thing is is that yeah, as you're saying, like forced arbitration always works in favor of the company. That's why so many companies want to do it. Like they wouldn't they wouldn't set that practice up if they actually thought it was neutral. Um. Yeah, and so. Like you had all these workers trying to get together, trying to share their stories about their interactions with the company, their employment details, and specifically trying to push back and trying to get forced arbitration taken out of contracts. Right. But it's it's hard to organize around that issue if you're you're being disciplined or being threatened because just for talking about it, even on as and as the ULP alleges, like on social media outside of work. Right. Oh my gosh. The social media clauses in so many people's either contracts or even just their their like user manual. I mean, like we I mean, we've complained about Starbucks a million times, but they also have a social media clause in their handbook that if you disparage the company or something like that, that basically they can reprimand you. And I've seen someone go like say that they uh had a bad day at work and then get written up. Like, <laughs> wow. Yeah. yeah, well, and I mean, it's it never applies to the management either. Like, they can say anything <laughs> right. they want to you on social media. Like, if you work for Tesla, you can't say, like, these cars are a death trap on Twitter. But Elon Musk can go on there and, like, tank the price of Dogecoin on a whim and nobody gives a yeah. shit. Like, the SEC finds him a grand. Yeah, and I mean, I think a lot of this always, you know, comes back to something we, we've talked about on here before, which is right. that uh, you should always talk to your coworkers about your salary and Correct. your benefits and, and how the company's treating you, especially if the company is being aggressive and telling you not to do that. Like yeah. that is, if anything, all the more reason why you should be doing it because it's an indication that they are screwing you over, you know, even more than you probably already know they are. <laughs> yeah. That's like true. the, the, the boss is like, uh, Hey, could you please not share, uh, details about your compensation and benefits? And you just immediately transform into the goofy meme. You're like, I'll fucking do it again. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so like, like you're saying, like the, these workers have been working with CWA as part of their, the ABK workers Alliance, mm-hmm. um, which it's great to see this level of, you know, worker collective action. Although it has been a bit, I mean, confusing to me as to like, none of these groups, like ABK is the place we've really mostly been, been hearing about, but the games industry as a whole, I know there have been places like the, like game workers united like and places trying to to actually form unions but it's like at Activision Blizzard it seems like I'm like you have everything in place like you should 
form a union. <laughs> like, right. Come yeah, on. I'm, it really makes me think that there are, is like a, a really serious small group that is like, hey, let's do this union thing. But then a lot of the other people are falling prey to that classic like, oh, but we get to work in the game industry. And so right. we're very privileged kind of thing. And we have to be thankful. And, and I'm sure that and it like not to not to like talk smack on on people but like you know that that is not how that works uh and uh, but it's a really it's really understandable like i've seen it happen in every workplace i've ever been at including shitty workplaces where they like you can convince someone at mcdonald's that they should be thankful for their job oh yeah uh, you get to you work at gamestop buddy you get to take all the games home and play them and (laughs) give people recommendations no, but I mean, like, I think there is something to be said for that, and especially in the gaming industry, uh, not just because of the culture around gaming, but also because of, like, the f- how intertwined it is with the tech industry at large. Right. There is a prevailing ideology there that I think extends to many of the workers that's very, like, septic and libertarian, you know? That's very, like, well, you know, the company has to do such and such. If, if we fought too hard, they'd have to spend money fighting us, and then they wouldn't be able to give us bonuses, you know what I mean? Like, that kind of <laughs> shit. So, uh, I really, funny. you know, I don't want to generalize too much. I know there are some game studios that are really cool and, and, and treat their workers well, but uh, f- I think in general, there's something to be said for the fact that the games industry is just... A, a hype, a particularly exploitative and particularly, uh, li- for lack of a better word, libertarian industry. And right, and that's why I think it's why I really appreciate when we see some of these these nascent unions that have come out, mm-hmm. including a lot of the really small independent ones, where they've taken the messaging of. I, I know that uh, I think it was Great Lakes Brewing was I think one of them mm-hmm. where they specifically were like, "Look, we love our workplace. We think this is a great place to work." And we can make it even better by having a union exactly. and having yeah. the people who do the work have a say in how it's run. And, and like, that's true no matter where you work. Yeah. Like, I mean, like, it's, it's like your, uh, your, your dad would tell you when you're trying to shoot hoops outside. He's like, you know, there's always room for improvement. Well, there's always fucking room for improvement in a workplace. You could have a job where you come in and you sit around and twiddle your fucking thumbs and make $100 an hour, and there would still be something you could do to improve your fucking workplace experience. But unfortunately, only a few people have those jobs. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, yeah, the, one of the, the key goals that, that the workers here who have fired the, filed the uh, ULP, they, they've said specifically that they hope that this can be like, a precedent. They said, quote, if the NLRB rules in our favor, the ruling will be retroactive and we will set a precedent that no worker in the U S can be intimidated out of talking about forced arbitration. And that would be great. I am sure that will not stop many companies yeah, right. from still trying to intimidate people because as we pointed out before, like the punishment for breaking the labor laws like that is way too low and is not really much of a deterrent for 99.9% of companies. Right. Yeah. But I mean like the the idea that they feel that that they're trying to be part of history in that way, I think is really cool. I think that that's a, something that's really empowering to workers. Like really when you when uh we had you know, unionize our shop, even though we were going to lose our union, uh, we actually forced a company into voluntary recognition of another shop. And so, you know, I mean that it's a, it's, you know, you set a precedent in history and it, it really makes a difference and and it makes the workers like feel good about that whole fight. Like it's a very, 
serious fight and it's really shitty to have the thing that like is your livelihood is your day-to-day the thing that the place where you spend it if like not as much time more time than you do sleeping yeah for <laughs> like sure. at at you know this is the place where like fighting is important and yep. and those wins are are felt very strong by the workers when they get them and and that that sentiment right there i think really really brings that to light yeah a- absolutely so i mean hopefully I-, I guess in that vein hopefully if they win you know the the unfair labor practice ruling that can and and set that precedent that can just serve as more motivation for them to say okay well if we can do this without a union imagine what else we could do with one like imagine right. the you know all the, all the other gains they could make and, and so i'm, I'm really it, it, and they have a quote in here from from uh, an anonymous employee who said quote i'm so glad to see the cwa supporting and protecting my coworkers from these coercive and isolating tactics it's important that people know their rights and that they have the ability to enforce these rights people should not fear for their jobs because they are speaking up to be treated with humanity and and that's Great sentiment to hear, and I really hope that, you know, if they're victorious here, that sentiment spreads and is able to help the, the folks in the ABK Workers Alliance expand their organizing efforts and get that actual, you know, unionizing process going. So, yeah, so we'll definitely have to we, keep watching We might this. see that. I, I really do. I, and maybe this is, like, a little bit too much speculation, but if they win, if they get some ULPs, like, like say, like, the NLRB says, yeah, this these are definitely fucked up things that the, the company did, you know, the, that's just more fodder for the union to do recruitment. And, and to say, you know, if they're doing this now, they're going to do it again. We need a union. And right. so I, I think that let's hope that, that this comes down in the favor of the workers because I think that it will lead them much more likely to have an actual union or like a, a full union instead of the partial union that they current ex- currently experience. Right. Well, and then on the note of expanding proletarian consciousness, on the note of understanding systematically how all of these things fit together, let's talk about a little radical leftist publishing <laughs> house known as One Verso Books. Uh, Which we talked about. We talked about Verso US when they voluntarily recognized their union, which was very cool and good. And what you would hope to expect from a you know a, a publishing house that routinely publishes avowed Marxists, uh, you know, uh, like feminist historian, anything that you could think of as being historically progressive, some version is available on the Verso marketplace. And for the most part, for the most part, they have published the Stalin book from Lacerdo. You fucking cowards. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, but Verso UK has failed to uh, recognize their union unsurprisingly. And so now we have the union's Twitter account saying that the union requested recognition way back on February 16th. And while management made noise about recognizing them, they didn't actually begin negotiating until four months later on June 10th. So we're seeing the beginnings of an anti-union campaign here from the UK offices of Verso Books, deeply dismaying, uh, especially because I just bought a big stack of shit from their summer (laughs) sale. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I mean, like, I I have so many books from Verso, so this is uh, rather frustrating. Also, a, kind of a strange inversion, I, I guess, to see that mm-hmm. the U.S. office, you know, voluntarily recognize their workers as they as they should, and then the the U.K. shop where you know you, uh, there's at least this perception here in, in the U.S. that you know Europe or at least I guess 
in most of Europe is maybe it was not like, the UK specifically. I think when we yeah, think about we like the more progressive, the UK. when we yeah. when American liberals are like, oh, Europe is so much more progressive. They're thinking of Nordic model countries and like France and Spain and Portugal. Right. <laughs> I don't think they're thinking of Britain, but yeah, I mean, kind of Britain fair. has like the national health service and shit. Like there, and a stronger union, like trade union history, and a, well, and also just like. When you're comparing almost any country to the U.S., it probably has a stronger <laughs> like That's true. movement. Yeah, but but yeah. So unfortunately, yeah, like as you're saying, like the U.K. office, the management there has been oof, way more standoffish and and not wanting to really work with the union very much. And and so, like as you mentioned, like there was a four month delay before they even started the negotiating process after the the union requested recognition, and since then. And this, we're, we're getting all this from the Verso Union UK's uh, Twitter account, who's been uh, getting this info out there for people. And they've been going through bargaining for the past, like, three and a half months now with, with them. And Verso's management has basically tried to make almost every aspect of a contract off limits. Right. This is this is the wild story. Is like, sure, they're, I guess they technically have gotten, like, voluntary recognition in a certain sense they they're through all of the wording it never like those words never appeared they it said that there was request for recognition of the union and then they did start bargaining at some point but never like really like a true recognition of the union i'm not sure maybe they did but um i uh, I think it's probably muddied by the fact that like, y- you have to imagine, yes, the staff at Verso are probably going to be a little bit more well-versed in the theoretical elements of what union organizing means and what this kind of solidaristic activity is for. But then you have to think, like, so do the bosses. Like, the entire management staff at Verso probably reads at least some of the books they publish. And unfortunately, like there's not really much more dangerous than like a capitalist who understands Marx really well. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Like- well, and what they've done is, is they've actually said, well, you can basically only bargain for wages. So right. in all of the different contracts that we cover here on this podcast, we talk about the healthcare that's in there, the work and safety uh, situations, uh, disciplinary grievance. Like the last episode we did with the interview with the um, the Hudson workers, mm-hmm. um, they talked about a grievance procedure being necessary for for them dealing with the issues that they have in their workplace. Things like that have been entirely taken off the table. There, it's going to be a contract with two paragraphs: <laughs> one that says how much you make, and one that says how much you make next year. And yeah. and and that is all they're willing to negotiate on, which is absolutely ridiculous like to to just totally separate the day-to-day working conditions from just the uh, the the uh, monetary compensation for that labor is truly like immaterial like like or immaterial i should say Mm -hmm. that's um and 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 like for a company that is loaded with marxist texts you think that their material analysis would be like oh all of these things matter and should be in the contract but no i think it's more that they realize that these are the things that we have to fight against because of the strength of their material consequence yeah like they specifically told the union they had to remove 
all references to organizing an industrial action from the agreement, which I'm like, it's a union. How are you supposed (laughs) to take that out of a union contract? What are you talking about? (laughs) Like that? It is absolutely why like, you know, we, we'd see company after company trying, you know, narrow the scope of, of union contracts all the time, but this is narrow just in general and to be coming from a supposedly leftist company right. that you know claims to embody at least some of the values from the books that they publish to like that cuz like what you were saying like Lena this is the list that they specifically mentioned that was excluded from bargaining for all that they they tweeted out they removed and will not bargain on hours holidays Disciplinary grievance procedures, health and safety, sexual harassment policies, sick leave and sick pay, parental leave, parental pay, child and health care provisions, gendered pay gaps, temporary and contracts use, and transparency over expansion. New hires. That's like that's everything. 90% of what's supposed to be in a contract. Oh, yeah. I love ordering my, my modern feminist texts from a company that refuses to barter on the gendered wage gap. What the right. fuck? That's insane to me. Yeah. So, so these, uh, these negotiating meetings are still ongoing. And I have seen at least, I mean, you never know how much this can translate into the real world. But I, I have seen a good amount of support, at least on the internet, including specifically from quite a few authors who are published by Verso. Mm-hmm. So that, I mean, obviously on the ground organizing and the actual impact of any of that is, is very difficult to gauge, but it was, I did think it was really good to see like m- multiple authors who have published a, a bunch of things with Verso come out very specifically and say, Hey, you should just, agreed to, to, yeah. to what these workers want to want to bargain over this is fucked up well and like so, if you had read my book <laughs> etc right, like, right. you know <laughs> yeah. Yeah. absolutely so uh, hopefully some of the public pressure they they get they feel that because like hey i mean while you know online only organizing and, and online solidarity has its limits verso being a publisher Leftists are nothing if not terminally fucking online. Yes. So, so <laughs> I have to imagine they would like to avoid some of the bad publicity from being gigantic hypocrites. Well, and publicity matters a lot to a company like Verso that is not just a publishing house, but specifically has a target audience that should right. be up in arms about this very issue. And like, that's this right. Is We're talking also, about you, dear listener. That's right. Well, that's and right. Like, this is important also because there aren't that many good publishing houses yep. for content similar to what comes out on verso and it's like don't make all of these wonderful authors go to like zero books or something like what a yeah, crime please. that would be so like yeah please just Zero's fucking recognize terrible. your fucking union for the love of god yeah. for the love of jorg lukach recognize your union <laughs> <laughs> yeah and and uh also release more of lacerdo stuff please do um <laughs> I've been trying to get a copy of Democracy or Bonapartism for a while now, and you guys are taking way too long to get that translated. Right. <laughs> and if you paid your workers more, I bet you could get the stuff out put out faster. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's right. That's right. But anyways, so our next story is about one of the more, you know, actually dangerous industries the for workers, uh, not being a pol- police officer, which is actually your only danger there is getting fucking COVID. Um, you know, the, the only danger of being a police officer is that you might be walking down the street and a roofer falls on you, killing you. <laughs> that's both. right. That's right. And <laughs> yeah. as John's alluding to, we are talking about the construction industry, mm-hmm. specifically construction workers in New York City 
where they're facing a push by developers and you know various construction contracting and subcontracting businesses to try and and hack away at what few safety res- like protections exist in that industry for the workers there specifically what this is going uh, uh, after is what's called referred to as the scaffold law or New York State mm-hmm. Labor Law 240 and and so uh, construction workers face one of the most dangerous jobs in the country they are the second deadliest industry in New York city after transportation and the leading cause of on the job death for construction workers is falls from elevations as you know, probably not surprising if you fall off a really high thing, that's very dangerous. It, it accounts for more than a third of all the fatalities in that industry per the occupational safety and, and health committee uh, of, of New York. But despite that, despite the fact that this is an already dangerous job and specifically the most dangerous part of it is falls from heights, they're trying to get rid of a, this law that requires property owners and contractors to provide workers with adequate safety equipment when they're working at high elevations. And that if they don't, it holds the owners and the contractors fully responsible for accidents and makes it unable to blame the worker, which you know, you would think that would be the law everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Uh, un- unfortunately, it is not, and they're trying to get rid of it even in New York City. And specifically, this, this law section 240 also allows injured workers to receive specific compensation for these sorts of injuries above and beyond what you would get from what little you could get out of work comp. And they're basically, these contractors are coming in and they're saying... Oh, it's not that we don't give a shit about our worker safety, even though we clearly don't. It's, it's that this law is just, it's providing too much bureaucratic red tape and it's making all of this construction more expensive. And, and they're claiming specifically Good, that it should be more expensive <laughs> right. if you're yeah. keeping people safe. Yeah, they're, they're claiming specifically that it increases construction insurance costs by over $785 million a year. And then claims, as every company always does regarding any regulation, that because of that, those costs get passed on to taxpayers. Oh, my God. $750 million a year is fucking nothing in New York City. What is the construction industry in New York City worth? Like, annually? Like, $10 billion or something like that? They build fucking skyscrapers, for God's sake. Like, what the fuck are you talking about? Well, and, and, I mean, obviously, they're trying to put a price on on the lives of these workers. Yeah. I mean, especially since the, the number of workers that have died from falls has increased every year in the past mm-hmm. couple of years up to mm-hmm. uh, 26 in 2019 because they didn't have 2020 uh, stats just yet. But uh, And then 2018, it was 23. And in 2017, it was 20. Like, they're literally, and I, I'm going backwards in time, so, so you know, it goes from 20 to 26 dead. And, and it's just, incre- the danger is increasing. And yet, for some reason, now is the time to reduce the regulations. Right. I, I just, it's fucking wild. Yeah, those guys in the old-timey photographs up on a skyscraper hooked up with one carabiner carrying a tin lunch pail are <laughs> sa- were safer than the people yeah. working on buildings today, which is, like, kind of truly deranged. Right, and, and one of the things that contributes to how dangerous the conditions already are, even with the scaffold law in place, 
is the way that these contractors and subcontractors will utilize undocumented labor specifically so they can screw those workers over. Cause mm-hmm. obviously, you know, it, we have nothing against employing undocumented folks. They, they should have all the same rights as everyone else, obviously, but they, they are specifically targeted by the construction sector so that these contractors and subcontractors can intimidate the workers by threatening, you know, to call ICE or, or another government agency on them Mm -hmm. so that they won't complain so that they can use like illegally shitty, um, safety, um, equipment or no safety equipment at all with the understanding that, that these workers won't feel able to go and complain to the state regulators because they're understandably worried about this state's fascist immigration system, you know, coming down on them. And so that's the environment that's already operating. And like they specifically in, in this article, this is, this is a, a piece from documented and why, which, which I believe is, is a, a website that is specifically focusing on, on issues faced by immigrants. And they interviewed uh, this guy, Eduardo Redwood, who's a Ecuadorian immigrant who's been, who's been working construction in the city for over 20 years, who said, quote, the contractors and subcontractors steal the workers' money. They'd rather increase their profits than invest in protective equipment for the workers' safety. And then he continued and pointed out that, quote, we had to buy our own protective equipment. Which, like, that's fucked in any industry, yeah. but in construction? Yeah, right. in an industry where protective equipment is like has a priority regardless of whether there's a global pandemic happening or not. Right. And and additionally, I mean like the idea that like the thing that workers, I mean like maybe they know ex- exactly where to go to get the industry standard high quality safety equipment, but often that stuff is is partially behind a, a company wall. I mean a lot of those companies that that distribute those uh, sorts of of pieces generally work directly with businesses and if it's right. individuals who are going to them for one they're going to end up getting charged more because they're not yep. able to buy in bulk but also they might not even have the the direct information of like what they need like whether there's certain additional like safety pieces in i don't know i mean i guess i also don't know but i just i i've done ordering of parts for for safety and and such and you you want to buy those things in bulk and the accurate like good safety mechanisms and that mm-hmm. could easily be done by the company well it's very just like easily when, when you get hired at a place and they're like hey we need you to wear a blue collared shirt and black pants and black shoes and if you don't have them you can buy them from us and we'll just take it out of your check but instead it's your hard hat and your mask and your safety gloves and all of your safety equipment your harness yeah exactly so it's like in an industry where this kind of stuff is critical it's it's hard for me to believe that like really there's a, there's an environment where we've come so far where people are just like oh yeah i guess this is acceptable and normal <laughs> but that really i guess that is like the driving power of of capital in the united states is that it constantly marginalizes things like fucking safety uh you know leisure uh sustainability anything like that so yeah and 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 so what they're lobbying to to do is after they replace the law or what they would what they want to do by repealing the scaffold law is replace it with one that's more in line with the standards that some other states use which is basically going to 
forced arbitration in in the case of injuries and and relying on workers comp which it it like is a system designed to give companies loopholes and outs and ways to blame the worker for accidents that are clearly industry related but gives the company who you know can hire expensive ass lawyers Mm -hmm. it gives them the ability to like expend all these resources to put the blame on the worker instead of actually just meeting these and and to the point that you were bringing up before lena those numbers about the the increasing deaths over the last few years that combined with all the other stuff in this article it talks about the ways that these companies are hyper exploiting these immigrant workers if anything this law needs to be expanded like it needs to be like they need to add really really harsh penalties for breaking this law and Mm -hmm. and and they need to put in specific language to protect immigrant workers not get rid of this protection yeah quadruple osha inspectors quadruple osha fines yeah like that's the thing it's funny because like you know they, they passed this gigantic stimulus supposedly to fix the economy but really to just give a shitload of money to you know the bourgeoisie and it's like you know what would be a a, a big stimulus to the economy and what would create a shitload of jobs why don't you hire a shitload more osha inspectors right so that osha can actually go to these places and actually enforce its regulations well i mean it's, all it's, like the, we, it's, it's the same fucking reason we don't build a high-speed rail network which yeah. would guarantee like you know thousands of jobs and create all kinds of new economic opportunities it's because like that's just not what the particular capitalist class that we have now wants to do they want to keep plowing ahead with 1980s industrialism in the yeah. modern day and it's it doesn't fucking work yeah, yeah, I mean, so. and I mean, I would almost go as far back as like we're seeing a lot of the return to conditions of of like pre NLRA, like oh, for sure. Dust Bowl era uh, piecework and shit, like exactly, yeah. yeah, all the shit that they're doing to imp- independent contractors now. So, so we'll have to keep an eye on this and and see if this campaign by the the contracting industry, which has a ton of money and therefore a ton of clout in state houses, like I know, like. Our local state house in Rhode Island is, is pretty well owned by developers. Um, right. So we'll have to you know, see, see if this campaign by them actually works. But I know that there's already like pushback being planned and actions in the works by, by construction workers and their organizations. So hopefully they're able, they're able to, you know, fight, fight back against this because that's like <laughs> removing protections from one of the most dangerous jobs out there is absolutely insane. And, and hopefully the legislators aren't so craven as to believe the the nonsense coming out of the the contract industry yeah Yeah. well i guess in the idea of people who are craven uh (laughs) and 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 just like absolute like detestable like people google right Uh, yeah the biggest cowards of all (laughs) yeah real pieces of shit fuck google yep Uh, that's right they actually uh are being, I guess, there was a revelation through leaked emails that Google has purposefully committed wage theft against a lot, a lot of temporary and contract workers outside mm-hmm. the U.S. And they have been doing it for years, like per- totally purposefully with the knowledge that that is their their intention, where they actually end up uh, paying people between uh, like four 
uh, was it between four and eight and a half pounds less than what they should have been paid per hour. Right. Well, um, and like this is so widespread. Like you're seeing this in the UK, Europe, and the article just says. Asia, which is a very huge <laughs> right. place full of people, uh, where apparently <laughs> Google has been routinely just completely flaunting and f- com- totally failing to comply with any kind of local regulations on paying their workers appropriately, and then pretty much just coasting on the idea that nobody is ballsy enough to stand up to Google in order to get away with it. Yeah. like So this is a, out of a, a couple of stories coming out of Business Insider and The Guardian, where these leaked emails, internal you know, emails from, from Google management exposed that in a lot of, so in a lot of countries uh, that aren't, or are at least slightly less hellish than the U.S. Mm-hmm. as far as labor law, they have laws and regulations that specifically mandate that temporary workers be paid equivalent rates to full-time employees if they're performing the same work, which, you know, Sensible. makes a lot yeah. of sense. Yep. Uh, and Google used to, you know, fucking over their temp workers in the U.S. even more than, you know, the regular workers because U.S. labor law is specifically written to allow you to do that, basically just decided, well, we should be able to do that everywhere. And And, they did. And then they did for years. (laughs) And and to the tune of... They probably still do. (laughs) Yeah. So the documents that were were leaked in in these emails and, and were reported in these stories estimate the wage theft from this purposeful like underpayment for these workers to be upwards of a hundred million dollars jesus they 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 had a quote in here uh we're like try, trying to do some of the the damage control on on this from from one of google's uh, compliance officers spiro Caretzos, who said quote while the team hasn't increased the comparator rate benchmarks in some years, actual pay rates for temporary staff have increased numerous times in that period. Most temporary staff are paid significantly more than the comparator rates. Nevertheless, it's clear that this process has not been handled consistent with the high standards to which we hold ourselves as a company. We're doing a thorough review, and we're committed to identifying and addressing any pay discrepancies that the team has not already ag- addressed. Yeah, X to doubt okay. on that one. Yeah. I, I <laughs> swear. Yeah. Like, the oh, we have such a high standard, yeah, that we've actually been exposed as doing this on purpose. Our standard is to to do our best to squeeze every single worker. I mean, the, I, the fact that a lot of these people are temporary workers in the first place is ridiculous, because I have heard stories of, quote, "Quote unquote temporary workers who are on their second and third years, right. like that's that's not a fucking temporary job. Yeah, I, no. I'm a seasonal worker, and that's like technically considered a temp- temporary job. But that's also we're open like eight months out of the year. Like that's 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 very different when you are working all year for three or so years. How in the hell are you considered a temporary worker? That just ridiculous just ridiculous to me in my opinion yeah and like we've covered before how google specifically makes use of a stratified workforce uh, of, of huge amounts of temporary and contract workers in order to pay their workforce less <clears throat> and they specifically mention in here that google employs over a hundred thousand temporary workers globally and more than 30 countries that these workers operate in have passed these laws mandating that temporary workers be paid the same rate if they're doing uh, equal work. 
and but like they they have the example here of like the Netherlands, where the Netherlands passed this pay parity law, and one of these leaked emails from a, a former Google compliance officer, Alan Barry, said, "quote This is a situation we ought to avoid." <laughs> <laughs> Which just basically like, wait, we we have to pay these people the the same as as, as full time workers. Well, uh, well, we can't be doing that. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, like it's because they really do like look at a person and say, all right, this is your value. Since I put the word temporary on you, it's less now. Yeah. No. Absolutely. And. And so the 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 analysis that that was done over you know the, these leaked documents to look at Google's workforce. Uh, one internal analysis said that uh, Google's expenses for 1,200 temps outside the Western Hemisphere would need to increase by $17 million to com- comply with pay parity laws, of which 12.65 million would go to temporary workers for increased wages and bonuses. And that's just on a go forward basis. Like right. that doesn't cover any of the back pay. <laughs> right. And and as you as you were mentioning before, Lena, like the the Individual temps were paid between 12 and 50% less than they should have been by these pay parity laws. And Google knew about that for years and dragged their feet on resolving the issue. And, and, and there, there's a bunch of quotes in the article and it, there's all this, you know, internal business speak about basically trying to avoid, Oh, well, you know, we don't want to make a, a big hullabaloo about this. We should quietly try and, and fix this in the background with the undercurrent in all of this of the longer we drag our feet on this, the more money we can save. And we're willing to wager that none of these countries, regulatory bodies will be willing to or have the legal resources to actually, you know, enforce us paying the back pay for these people. Well, and even if, like, say one country does, like, they're counting on not all of the countries being able to fight them. uh, Because if they go, if they fight this tooth and nail every single step of the way, they're going to get some wins. Right. And and one of the, the key facets that's really encouraged this is that in a lot of these countries that have the pay parity laws, even when they have them, they have a really narrow statute of limitations for when you can report this sort of wage theft. And the articles mentioned that in most of most cases, it's between three and six months of when it occurred, which means that since Google's been dragging their feet on this for years, a lot of these cases are now outside the statute of limitations, and so they wouldn't even yeah. be able to bring a case in court. Classic. Classic, cla- classic uh, right. delaying, delaying tactic. That's what the company does every single time. I mean, I don't think that there's a single story where, uh, you know, workers' rights are in question, where the, the company isn't trying to drag its feet at every single step of the way. Yeah, and I think this, this, uh, this goes to exactly what you were saying, Lena, and I think this was, was one of the most damning uh, lines from any of the internal emails that were in the article. This was specifically from The Guardian from the, the Google internal emails that said, quote, the threat of litigation is greater than the prospect of actual litigation. <laughs> and they said that, quote, if and when they become aware, they will seek recompense, but will want to avoid litigation. Strategy should therefore be driven by an assessment of the internal PR slash reputational risk 
and the risk of pay disparity becoming known within our temps population, end quote. This reminds me a lot of like one of the earliest things that I learned about companies uh, doing what like like using regulation to do this is like what I think it was Menards where they were dumping toxic waste into like local water sources because right. it was cheaper to pay the fines than it was to pay for the disposal of the uh, <laughs> yeah. the actual like chemicals and shit like that. They will do that. They are doing a calculated risk here. They're like well, there's not a really good chance that these people will even get their, uh, you know, the, the litigation that these people will even bring this to court. Um, and, and they're, they're betting on that. Yeah. I mean, it's like how, like, you know, I think folks have brought this up before where if a crime is punished by a fine, then it's really only illegal for the working class That's because, the rich can just pay that and not give a shit. And it's the same thing with these sorts of, of regulations where they may have great intent, but if the teeth behind them is less than the savings that the company can make by breaking them, exactly, they employ accountants for a reason. They're going to do that cost benefit analysis every time. So yeah. So fuck Google. This shit is fucked. Fuck Google. <laughs> yeah. Again. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, but yeah. yeah, I mean, it, it points to like, you know, why any of these regulations, like we need, we need pay parity laws like that in the U S but they need to have fucking teeth behind them, yeah. just like any of these labor regulations. Well, I guess in the, uh, interest of, of, you know, cr- creating something with teeth, uh, we can move to our final story, which is actually, uh, similar to, uh, other follow-ups that we've done, uh, on Amazon, except for, uh, this one is the Teamsters following up on their uh, commitment to organize Amazon warehouses. Uh, they've actually just announced that they are going to do that at nine Amazon warehouses in Canada, which is really, I mean, it's a, it's a good sign, at, at least. I mean, I know that, uh, what is it, the only walmart that ever unionized was in canada i mean they did close that walmart but like it's technically it's technically possible to unionize things like that in canada based on their labor law so uh i i think that there is a a good chance that we're gonna see you know a couple amazon warehouses actually get their state recognized unions uh at least starting in canada right so this uh this begins with edmonton alberta's teamsters local union 362 who filed for a vote on union representation at a company fulfillment center in nearby nisku lake last monday and they also plan to launch drives at eight other amazon facilities so they're not starting small they're like we're gonna open up this one union we're gonna unionize this one facility and then we're gonna launch drives to unionize eight more so they're really not dragging their feet on this. And it's cool to see because I think uh, my my enthusiasm for the Teamsters announced plan to unionize Amazon was tampered with some doubts uh, when they initially launched it. And to see this kind of follow through right away uh, is pretty cool. And it says they've already got uh, 40% of the uh, people in the Edmonton unit who have signed cards, which is enough to meet the the threshold in Canada, which is interesting. It's only 40% up there. That's 10% yeah, well, less than down here. Uh, no, I, the threshold for signing cards in the United States is one third. Oh, um, 33. Okay. That's yeah. Right. It's for, for possible voluntary recognition is 50 plus 1%. Gotcha. Okay. That's what I was thinking of then. Yeah. So I, I, I think basically like 
kind of as you were alluding to, they're they're starting here because mm-hmm. Canada's labor law appears to be a little more friendly. Not that that's a very high threshold to clear sure. <laughs> than U.S. law. I mean, yeah, obviously that 40% is higher than the 30%, but ultimately when you're going through an election, you, you got to clear 50% anyway one, yeah. to, to get the, the success. So if they can get the ball rolling here in Canada and get one, two, eight, nine of these places unionized, that momentum will help them not only, you know, organize more warehouses in, in Canada, but by showing that it can be done would, would be a huge shot in the arm for efforts here. Right. Yeah. And, and, and so this is definitely going to be something we got to like be watching. Well, and I really want to point out that if, if any of these places do get their union and they get contracts, what that will actually do is that will put pressure on them to raise work conditions in mm-hmm. non-unionized plants as well. Mm-hmm. That's right. So Absolutely. these people are out there fighting for every single Amazon worker. And so if, when that happens hopefully we get to see a lot of uh, ability to show solidarity with them similar to like how we uh that was tried at Bessemer and uh like i i am you know a little optimistic i got a little bit more faith in in <laughs> in, in this one than than the Bessemer drive which uh people will remember i i compared it to a a failed uh, union drive at a uh, car manufacturing company and turns out it was kind of similar <laughs> yeah so obviously you know we wish them the best of luck and 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 really hope that that can be successful because if if there can start to be like this sort of a you know cascade effect from from organizing at at amazon even in you know even in north of the border like that would be absolutely huge for, for workers here so yeah we will and, be following right that yeah, so, and speaking of being fucking huge, uh, <laughs> here's the meme review. That's right. <laughs> uh, we're no. starting with the uh, with a really fresh teenage stepdad meme, which looks like it's, like, uh, a worn, like, vinyl cover, almost, but yeah. it's a, a skull with a police cap, and uh, and it just has a bunch of really awesome text on here. Uh, it just says... Abolish the police. Cops don't solve crimes. From bumbling city cops to the elite doofuses at the FBI, the police astoundingly are astoundingly terrible at doing their fucking jobs. <laughs> quote that quote yeah, is from Cop Watch. <laughs> yeah, like this is it's got like a picture of uh, Larry Nasser on the side because of the recent testimonies about how right. the FBI basically just you know let him abuse dozens and dozens of of people in, in the gymnastics program and, and did nothing about it. Yeah. And, and I, I do appreciate in this meme that, that they made the, the dead cop the, cause the, it's like a skull cop with like a, a big badge on the top of it. And it's badge number one, three, one, two, which is yeah. a nice little detail. <laughs> nice. Well, and I'm also seeing now, now I'm that I'm getting a little bit better view of the, the photo, the kind of pushed into the background, cop on the right is actually that one cop who uh was holding that one woman's child uh and used them as a photo opportunity to basically after literally attacking this woman used this photo to kind of like make the cops look like the saviors and and apparently that was I, I really wish i um had that person's name handy but apparently they did just get a settlement out of, out yeah, of that I, particular I, event 
I think they were they got a settlement of like two million dollars, which is yeah. good because fuck those cops. Yeah. Uh, that person absolutely deserved compensation. And this one, I appreciate not only for being as all teenage stepdad memes are very high quality, but an extremely important point because this is one of the this is like probably the most common rejoinder you hear when you talk about abolishing the police. Right? It's like, oh well, who's gonna solve? What about when there's a murder? It's like cops don't fucking solve murders. They don't do. They don't actually solve crimes. Like they don't prevent crimes. They don't solve them. Like they That's just not their job. They will. They will yeah. occasionally try to solve a crime if a very wealthy person's baby goes missing, for instance. But other <laughs> right. than that, they they're not gonna come help you and me. Like yeah yeah yeah. And so. Continuing on that vein, <laughs> we've, we've got another one here. I, I appreciate the use in this one of an obviously watermarked stock photo of a cop <laughs> with a like whew, Windows 98 level word art uh, border around him. Yep. Uh, <laughs> and it's, uh, it's this picture of this cop and it just says with the caption, look, bud, I don't make the laws. I just voluntarily signed up to enthusiastically enforce the violence that they require, <laughs> which is yeah, so true. It's very true. Yeah. I, I liked that one. It was kind of just, uh, it's got, and it's a really washed out looking cause it's like slightly <laughs> yeah. orange background and right. obviously, yeah, just like pasted rectangle photo of a cop on the back of a, of a starburst, like, or, or yeah. I, I guess a, that's it. and I mean that in like the color style, not like in the in the candy. But that that's another one because you, you'll hear people be like, "Oh, not every cop is bad," and it's like, "Well, uh, they can quit. Like <laughs> they signed up to do that shit. They don't have to do it forever." <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, uh, that's a, that's the thing. The common uh, thing you say to people who are like, "Blue lives matter." It's like blue lives don't exist. It's a job. You can quit. Right. Like quit your job. That's all yeah. there is to it. Yeah. Well, uh, this speaking next of one, common I, sense. Yeah. yeah. I wanted to, I wanted John, I wanted to let you do this one because you're the, you're the king of the hill guy of the podcast. I'm a big Mike judge fan. Yeah. So, uh, this is a great <laughs> meme format. It's Hank describing the steak situation to Bobby. Uh, and he says firm, but with a little give the result of cooperative production to stayify human needs and allowing all to reap the benefits. And then Bobby's like, what if someone wants to privatize it into a free enterprise, developing the production to instead generate profit and accumulate private capital? And to which, of course, Hank replies, we ask them politely yet firmly to leave. (laughs) 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 Which is one of the greatest things you can ever like have as a contingency plan is like, uh uh-oh, is it time to ask someone firmly yet politely to leave? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, growing growing up in Michigan, that was, I always felt like that was a real kinship Michigan has with like Texas is that (laughs) like we get wild, but like in most of, even when we're like really upset, we're like, okay, it's time to be firm yet polite (laughs) (laughs) yeah i guess in that exact same kind of energy of of that meme the next one is a meme format that i'm generally not very i'm not a fan of uh but it's the um the woman in the the red shirt with the giant boobs uh talking to the the shriveled brain of a of another human being or something like that i don't do you know what what is this uh what's this format called john I think that's just supposed to be like a, a, a like a very beat down Wojak, basically. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then it's uh, babe, it's eight p.m. Time for you to learn why Russia going from a feudal monarchy to modern industrial superpower is actually a failure of communism. <laughs> 
the shrivel brain person is like, yes, education system. Because <laughs> I, I just well, love how it's so easy for, for people to be like anti-communist. Like, oh, yeah, you just all communism bad. And right. like with with no actual analysis behind it. Yeah, that's well, that's like a, why one of my like favorite lines from Michael Perenni is like people talk about like, oh, communism doesn't work. Well, communism did work for hundreds of millions of people. Right. Like, <laughs> And 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 still does in in, in in a few countries and will in the future for the other seven billion. <laughs> uh, and then this last one is actually just a uh, a photo in the wild of a and this is one that we had a little bit of a talk about in the uh, in the Discord. It just says "Don't get vaccinated," uh, and it's on the side of a truck. Uh, it says "Wilmore Funeral Home." Uh, which <laughs> oh. to me means that the, you know it's profitable for them for people to not get vaccinated and there was a little bit of a of a back and forth on you know like sure this is maybe ironic but i think that there's a little bit of honesty in here that makes me like what is the um the P- pose law i believe is what it is right where uh where you, you like can't tell if something is serious or a joke well, um and and i really think that this does ride that line well yeah i mean i i think that they definitely meant it to be i i think that funeral home people probably have a specific appreciation for morbid humor sure Um, (laughs) i worked with a guy who was very proud of his 30 years as a mortician and his sense of humor was completely fucked (laughs) (laughs) yeah hey that's important work um uh but like so i think that this was meant as you know some some black comedy here but the problem is is that we live in a society that is (laughs) to to use everyone's favorite phrase (laughs) Uh, but like that is so fucked at, at actually recognizing satire. Right. That like, I'm not sure it's uh, going to have the intended effect. <laughs> See the funeral home agrees with me. I won't get the jab. It has right. 5g. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that's the thing. I've, uh, I've got half a microchip in me. I don't need the other half. <laughs> Yeah, like, I'm sure there's some fucking loon who's going to see this and be like, see, even the morticians don't want to work on vaccinated bodies because they're worried about the radiation or some, <laughs> some insane bullshit <laughs> like that. Don't give them ideas. That was almost kind of hilarious. Well, I guess that is the episode for today, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you if you are a supporter. If you'd like to become a supporter, we're entirely listener supported and you can do that over at patreon.com slash work stoppage uh give us a good review share our uh you know episodes with a friend especially if you particularly like the story you know put it out there we really appreciate you getting the word out there about this because that's what we're trying to do by doing this project yeah Um, i mean if you really want to spread the word take your favorite episode and record it to cassette tape and mail it to the (laughs) pentagon and just see what happens (laughs) i'm just kidding please don't mail things to the pentagon Uh, (laughs) (laughs) yeah uh speaking of follow john on twitter at facebook villain and you'll get really great uh jokes like that just like that Uh, (laughs) you can follow us uh, and more specifically dan on twitter at work stoppage pod and uh listen to the other podcasts beep beep lettuce and red game table and we will see you next time uh as always Labor peace is not in our interest. Solidarity forever. Solidarity, everybody. Solidarity, folks.
Top on it gets a lid every time when these coffee taste so fine. Hot drinks really get you going. Warms you up when you feel you're slowing. Wendy's, we always serve it right away. Have a smile and have a nice day. Next is the cafe brew, it just like coffee. Use the orange pot, it makes it easier to see. But if you're using the packets in your store, put it in the small cup and furthermore, add hot water up to the line and stir it in. Put a lid on and serve it on a tray again. Get a small cup when you're ready for hot tea. Fill with hot water, it's easy as can be. Put the lid on and set the tea bag on the top. If they want lemon, it's very nice. Don't think twice. Give them guests a juicy slice. Hot drinks really get you going. Warms you up when you feel you're slowing. Wendy's, we always serve it right away. And a smile and have a nice day. Grab a small cup when you're making hot cocoa. Put the packet and then you add your H2O. Use a clean spoon and stir it till it's all mixed up Toss the spoon out and put 